and welcome back to another very special episode of Witch Fix because guess who is here? Oh my god, who's here? Get out. <laughs> this is my house. <laughs> As you may be able to tell, we have recorded quite a few episodes while uh, I've been staying with Vanda and this is the second in the two-part series, so if you didn't like it, it's over now. Yeah. We're, we're done. Uh, of us watching Midsummer Murders episodes that had witches in, and I am, to say the least, horrendously disappointed. I, I feel like I've been witch-blocked. Like... We, we call it crystal balls. Okay, crystal balls. I like that. Um, <laughs> because um, when we were looking at episodes that we wanted to do, I kind of wanted to have one that we definitely knew would have witches in for each episode of the podcast. And so Worm in the Bud, which is season five, episode four, was the witchy episode that was meant to be a, a sure thing because the episode description contained witches. It was meant to be incredibly witches. Incredibly witches. Incredibly witches. It was meant to be incredibly witches. How many witches were in that episode, Banda? It depends how you count herbalists. Not a fucking one. <laughs> Not a fucking witch. And then the second episode we looked at, which is Talking to the Dead, uh, season 11, episode seven. Um, there, there were, in fact, less than zero witches in that, really. Yes. Because there was a psychic, um, but, like, one of those, like, David taking Akura. your money. Yeah. Like, I am the ghost hunter. Like a, like a TV psychics. kind of psychic. Yeah. Um, Which, in my opinion, counts as negative one psychic. <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah. So, uh, before we uh, start bashing these episodes too mm -hmm. heftily, um, aside from the fact that it was disappointing that they, although they mention witches, and we'll see that in a moment, they, they weren't as witchy as the ones we discussed in the first episode, mm. which is a, a real shame. So uh, to start with, Worm in the Bud, yes. which I was falsely excited by, teased if you will. Yes. Um, so that's, as I said, Series 5, Episode 4, which means it has, dun 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 dun, Troy! Dearest Troy, the yeah. real MVP of Midsummer Murders. Yes. Um, so he is the, the, the most well-known Barnaby sidekick, I think, uh, is Dearest Troy. Long suffering for DS Troy. Um, <laughs> so uh, the plot of this one basically centers around what, like a, a, a spooky wood? Sort of. It's like there is a wood and there's like a lot of stuff going on. It's mostly about farms more than anything. Oh, good. It, it's about like one guy is trying to sell the wood that is attached to his farm because he has no money. And other people are like, you can't sell the woods. They're really important. There's lots of heritage and Trees. ecology and stuff. So it's mostly about this. Um, so um, at the start of the episode, we see two kids playing in the spooky woods. Their names are Julie and Sean. Julie, I feel like, is even more the real MVP than the yeah. Sergeant Troy. In this episode. Ju Julie does a lot. Like As we will see, Drooly... Drooly. Drooly. <laughs> Drooly, Julie. It started early. <laughs> Drooly has, uh, is really pulling away this episode, as we shall see. Um, so they disturb someone who is cutting flowers in the woods. You don't really see who it is. They're just wearing, you know, black gloves and a black jacket, which is kind of a trademark of what the killer is seen as mm. in Midsummer Murders. You know, yeah. Just a shadowy figure. Yes. Um, when they're running through the woods, they find a body lying mm. face down in the grass. Uh, and they think that the person has been like knocked out by robbers because that's the, the game that they're playing and then they run off home. Yeah, they are disturbed by a Jack Russell Terrier. Yeah, so Jack Russell Terrier runs up, starts barking near the body and then they run away. We are then introduced to a lot of characters very quickly and a lot of them look really similar in the sense that, you know, white guys with brown hair in wax jackets in Land Rovers look kind of similar. 
But we are introduced to Mr. James Harrington. He owns the woods, of which Randall spoke, and he wants to sell them to... Okay, I thought that said local Disney, but it's local dismay. I just can't read my own writing. And the main opposition from this comes from a guy called Simon. What's Simon's last name? Um, no idea. Simon Bartlett. Because I kept saying Albert Bartlett, which is mm. the potato. Anywho. So Simon Bartlett doesn't want the woods to be sold. He owns the farm, which is a neighbouring farm to James Harrington. His family has been farming on that farm for 500 years. And he has ambitions to buy Abbey Farm, which is the one that belonged to James Which he's kind of trying to do with the help of a very uh, sultry and seductive barrister. Yes. Who is uh, helping him to fight for the woods and yes. them not being built on. She seems really interested in lots of obscure knowledge from like the 1600s. She has a lot of paperwork going. She, she likes weird laws because she thinks that's a way they can get... Uh, get. Ah yes, more on that yes. in a moment. Because this is the third of the four episodes mm -hmm. uh, that mentions the dissolution of the monasteries and also features churches quite prominently. So we find out um, in quick succession that Mr. Harrington's wife, Caroline, is separated from him because he had an affair for six years with Susan Bartlett, who is Simon's wife. And he'd probably care a lot more if he wasn't banging the barrister. So everyone's yeah. cheating on everybody else, which is very <laughs> sad. Now, the barrister, whose name is Bernadette Sullivan, says that due to a quirk of the law because of the dissolution of the monasteries, monasteries, yes, monasteries, uh, she says that the local rector can actually claim half the profits from the sale of the wood due to uh, the fact that the wood slash the farm used to belong to the abbey, which is why it's called Abbey Farm. So obviously, if they manage to push this through, James Harrington might not want to sell because he'll just lose half the money. And this is how we find out that Simon wants to buy Abbey Farm and also that he may be thinking about divorcing his wife and getting with the barrister instead. Although the whole like rector plot point doesn't really actually go anywhere. No, nah, it's never mentioned again. Um, we then see James, who just really loves to drive drunk a big happy bunch. He splashes a, an older lady with his car. Her name is Victoria, and she is Simon's mum. Mm -hmm. uh, she'll be a, a pretty heftily featured character mm -hmm. in the uh, episode. But you can tell, because she's the one where you watch it and go, I know I've seen her in something else. Yeah, I know, right? And we never yeah. worked out what it was, no. but, but we've seen her in something um, then the kids, uh, we go back to the kids, they tell their parents that they found a body in the woods that had been knocked out, uh, and they obviously think that it's just uh, a game, Then um, they don't believe the, the kids. And then we get our first spooky witchy scene, Ooh. which lasts maybe five seconds. Uh, and do you want to describe a little bit about what that was? Well, it is very witchy when you initially see it. Uh, there's lots of like weird sort of children's giggles soundtrack playing, which to the best of my knowledge, was not actually playing in the scene at the time. That's a, like an audio editing choice that they had yeah. made. Rather Midsummer than... Murders likes to add in yeah. just creepy sound. Which I have issues about. We will talk more about that later, though. The, the There's like a pinboard covered in black and white pictures of like two children and various sort of idyllic scenes, and they're all kind of pinned up there, very sort of scattered kind of way. Um, and there's like a candle that's burning and it's tapered and you see this like black gloved figure sort of doing something kind of witchy and woo-woo with some flowers in the foreground. Witchy and woo-woo Witchy indeed. and woo-woo. Uh, we then see um, the drunk James sort of park up near the woods and then we see the black clad figure 
dragging the body that we saw earlier just on the ground in the woods into the lake, which is very odd because obviously, you know, if you want to dispose of a body, that's a shallow it, kind of yeah, lake. It's, isn't really... it's not like a, a huge lake. It's kind of more like just a sort of a pond yeah. in the middle of this forest. So it, it doesn't seem like it would really do anything to hide the body. Which it doesn't. Uh, we're then introduced to Hannah, whose main sort of characteristic is that she carries a shotgun and that she owns a Jack Russell Terrier, as do quite a lot of people in the village. This is a different Jack Russell to the one we saw earlier. Yes. Um, and Hannah, we later discovered, was um, Hannah Harrington, James's mum. Now, conversely to James and Simon, who hate each other, Hannah and Simon's mum, Victoria, are actually quite good friends. They've been friends since childhood. Uh, so we do see them together a number of times. And they also talk about, they each have lines about how both of their families have been there for generations and they're very strong in preserving the traditions of the village and all that kind of stuff. Yes. And um, the kid's dad, who is the kennel master for just a local group of hounds, goes out walking with approximately 50 beagles mm -hmm. and stumbles across the body in the lake, at which point they realise that the kids were right when they talked about the body in the woods. But obviously now the body's in the lake, which is confusing. So uh, the the hounds master tells little, little Julie Julie to run off home and get help immediately and sort of yells at her to make her do it because she seems like the sort of child whose impetuous curiosity will be her downfall. Um, and then he like goes and drags the figure out of the lake. And we um, see. And but the body is Susan Barber. Yes, the body is the wife of Simon. And the mistress Ooh. of James. Former mistress. Well, we don't well, know that for sure. Yeah, dodgy reporting on that. Some claim former, some claim current. Yeah, he definitely told his wife they weren't seeing each other anymore, but we'll see what that's worth. The fact that the body was moved is quickly discovered when Barnaby arrives at the scene and is told by the kid's dad that uh, they'd said that the body was hiding in bushes and obviously now it's in the lake. So now they know that the body was moved. Uh, we also find that Susan apparently sent a suicide email that said, I must face up to the truth and some various other things. Uh, we're not sold on her having actually sent that because nope. it's an email. That's pretty easy to fake. And uh, Simon discovers this when he's about to start the day with the cows on his farm and uh, very suddenly flies into a panic when he receives that, runs through the house trying to find her, realises he can't. And that is when we are introduced to his help-ish person. Yes. <laughs> Who looks like a spare character from Farmer Ted. He's got a lot of like wild white hair and he's wearing a big pair of blue coveralls. And his mm -hmm. name is Mr. Blopson. He's quite sassy when he's actually talking, which is a yes, lot. Yes, he, he mostly just sort of seems to scowl knowingly and uh, and like be vaguely menacing. Yes. Uh, but he seems kind of like a good egg. He's just kind of like a rough country guy who knows a lot about farming. And uh, Then Mama Bartlett shows up and is all like, you need to treat your wife with respect even now she's dead because you never did it when she was alive. So basically I love her and she's just spitting straight facts. Yep. Uh, we're now 31 minutes into the episode, which is like third. Yeah. And uh, no witches. No witches. Also, there has only been one murder, which half of the characters in the thing still think is a suicide. Yeah, so it's a pretty slow burner, this yeah. one. Yeah. Uh, and there aren't really a lot of deaths in this one. No. Um, but we'll get to that. We now find out some interesting information from an autopsy, which I think is the first autopsy we've had in, like, actually mentioned yeah, something that's interesting. That's been more than just sort of a... Like, like a testing of a substance yeah. found on their clothes. 
because we actually get some information about like time of death and things like that. So we find out that Susan Bartlett was drowned, which is sort of makes sense because she was found in a pond, but also doesn't make sense because she was originally seen lying on dry land. And we find out that the time of death is actually after the kids saw the body. So she was knocked out on the ground and then like six hours later was drowned. Which is weird. Weird, because how do you get someone to stay unconscious for that amount of time? Yes, that is what they are wondering. Mm. And also they find out that the email was sent after the body was already seen dumped in the woods. So it's pretty likely that it was murder. And at this point they do start treating it as a murder. We then get to see the uh, mystery black gloved person cutting a rose in Mrs. Bartlett Senior's garden. And then the next morning she wakes up and all the flowers in her garden have been beheaded and laid on the ground in the outline of a man. Like when they do in like film noir stuff with the chalk outline of the body. But with like begonias. But with flowers. It's a very pretty visual, really. It's like, so pretty, but also sinister. Yeah, which I really liked that they went for the thing of, it seems very witchy because it's a very sort of like symbolic yeah. thing. The th- the, I had an issue with that as well, which um we'll get into later, mm-hmm. but... Um, but yeah, it was in the moment, it was quite unnerving and spooky. So uh, they obviously call the police and they're like, look at this. And the police are like, wow, that's a thing that we're seeing. Which, by the way, the police are summoned by um, Troy. Troy has gone round to talk to the guy who's selling the James. Farm, James, uh, about just whether or not he and Susan Bartlett were involved at the exact time or like what happened the night before. And Victoria whose garden it is, calls there to see if there happens to be a policeman there. No, Hannah calls Oh, there. Hannah calls there, yes. So James's mum calls because Victoria doesn't want to bother anyone. Mm. Um, but um, obviously Hannah is like, no, yes. this is But I just weird. love that she just sort of called her... Like, so I'm like, I'm I, know there's, there. I know there's police around at the moment and it seems like eventually they'd end up interviewing you. Are they there at the moment? <laughs> yeah. Hannah is, 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 is pretty cool. Um... <laughs> So we're now 39 minutes in and we get our first sort of witchy thing dropped in, uh, which is two facts that we learn about the deceased Mrs. Bartlett. Uh, One is that she was really desperately trying for a baby. They tried lots of different things like IVF uh, and all sorts of like kooky remedies and treatments and stuff that hadn't worked. And also that she was really into uh, tarot readings. And paying for them online. And paying for them online. Basically the laptop that she sent or supposedly sent the suicide email from, she spent a lot of time researching particularly, like, occult things. On well, no, that. just, the, the, just the tarot. And, yes. And also the stuff to do with, um, like, getting pregnant and mm. stuff. This literally it never mentioned again that the interest yeah. in tarot, we thought it was going to come to... Yeah, but, um, no. No, no, she was not, a, in fact, a witch. Okay, this is when we get, like, the only witchy conversation that takes place. So if you're looking forward to that, clear out your ears, listen to the sound of my voice. Can't be because it's over really fast. Um, so Hannah is talking to Barnaby, and she says that the flower man on the thing is probably connected to the evil eye because there were witch hunts in the area, and literally that's all she says. Yeah, and uh, that that was a big traditional thing, and that was what the flowers made her think of, and therefore it must be something evil. Yeah, not sure how a man made of flowers counts as the evil eye, except maybe it's like a signal that. You know, you do something creepy to unnerve someone, you're out to mm-hmm. get them. But um, this is the only reference we have to the witch hunts in the area and to the evil eye ever again. So remember, that's why I like Hannah so much. Maybe, because yeah. she seemed clued in on that. We then find out, because Drolly Julie 
has truly, truly taken to police work. Uh, she decides that she's going to try and hunt down this dog that they saw because she reasons that the dog's owner must be the one who dumped the body in the woods. So she draws like little outlines of dogs and then goes around the town like colouring in the markings with crayons every time she sees like a Jack Russell to try and eliminate suspects. She's also armed with a pack of sausages in case any of the suspects become uh, become violent, which I, I thought showed great forward planning. Great, great for... forward planning. For an eight-year-old. <laughs> this is the second episode that involves sausages. Yes. Don't know why that's a thing. I don't know, but it, uh, it was just a connection when I found the music. We uh, find through Julie Julie's investigations um, that Mr. Bloxham, the farmhand, lives in a sort of decrepit, run-down house in the middle, middle of, of nowhere. Uh, and um, he also owns the dog from the body discovery, which kind of attacks a little bit, but then she's like, sausage. And it's like, I love you. Let's be friends. And then Mr. Broxton comes out all like shouting and threatening, so the kids run away. We get another visit back to everyone's favourite witch wall, the spooky, spooky witch wall, where we get to see a better look at some of the pictures and they are of what appears to be a little girl and a little boy, and they're playing a lot together, smiling at the camera, and it does appear to be quite old pictures. And um, we also find out that the uh, dead lady, she got a call from James Harrington's wife before her death. Uh, so that obviously looks a little bit suspicious and they start maybe investigating her a little bit. However, before this un uh, investigation can turn up any results, we get another shot of our killer up to no good because he arrives at James Harrington's house and he gives some dog meat to the dog, obviously. The sheepdog. The, the sheepdog that comes out and barks. So uh, obviously there's some sort of uh, drug or something in that to incapacitate the dog. Uh, he then goes into the house and does something which is a little bit strange because James is passed out with an empty whiskey bottle. And uh, so this serious killer replaces the empty bottle with another empty bottle, which is seemingly identical, but takes the glass away and leaves. Then he brings in a sack barrow and buries him in the mud pit. Yep, just, just takes the unconscious guy out and then the next shot is just James Harrington dead and drowned in mud. Yeah, which was pretty um, jarring. Yeah, <laughs> pretty jarring. Um, after this, Simon announces that he's had enough. He doesn't want to stay in this area. He's had just his fill of rural drama. He's going to sell the farm, which his mother is not very happy about. And Mr. Bloxham sees them arguing. Meanwhile, Troy and... Um... Did you forget Barnaby's name? No, James's mum. Oh, Victoria. No. No, Hannah. Hannah. Uh, Troy and Hannah are standing around at James's demuddening and uh, and are like very sort of not particularly visibly upset about it, but um, there's generally a sense of concern. And Hannah's instantly into sort of problem solving mode, and she walks off and says, "Well, I've got to go and see about the dog now because there's a chance we might still save him." And the dog is puking up a lot of green stuff everywhere. Very green, like mushy pea greens. Yes. And uh, the kennel master says that he can smell something on the vomit that's really familiar and he can't place where the smell is. So, so Barnaby decides that Troy gets the lovely job of scraping up a lot of dog vomit to uh, to send it to the lab. Yep. Maybe this is why Troy. Uh, we get a couple of reveals. Uh, then we find out that it is Mr. Bloxham who has the witch wall. Uh, and he also does a lot of like herbal medicine stuff. We see him brewing up some sort of concoction yeah. and filling a whiskey bottle with it, which is the same whiskey bottle as the empty one. We also see him break into a house and steal some hair from a hairbrush, which 
we initially thought was for a witch reason. Yeah. But it turns out it's to plant as fake evidence. Mm. Uh, he also makes a phone call which implicates Simon Bartlett. Yes. Which implicates Simon Bartlett in the murder. So it's unclear what his motivation really is at this point, which is kind of the main mystery is mm. just to why the fuck he's doing the things that he's doing. And we find out from the coroner that valerian, the, the herb, is what was given to both Mr. Harrington, the dog, and Mrs. Bartlett, which is why she was asleep in the woods for so long. Uh, and that the woods, which are called, I think, Setwell Woods, yes. um, are named after valerian, because apparently it's a folk name for valerian. And it grows in very large quantities there, which means that you could get enough large quantities to not only make someone go to sleep, but actually render them permanently unconscious or paralyzed yeah there's another reveal which kind of relates back to the witchy stuff which is that one of the witches who was um, executed was mary bloxham and so therefore uh, a relative of mr bloxham this is also never mentioned again we do also find out that uh mr bloxham's granddad was the village herbalist and was uh even after the war the sort of more trusted medicine man of the village yes so it seems like um Mr. Bloxham is sort of following in those footsteps. And just as you're about to think, okay, Bloxham's the killer, except you're not, because when they make it that obvious yeah. and they're trying to like show him doing all these dodgy things, you know it's not going to be him. The killer comes for Mr. Bloxham, knocks him out, and disposes of the uh, pictures on the witchy wall. And we finally get an actual Midsummer Murders moment where he turns around and sees the killer and is going to greet the killer and then gets bludgeoned on the head. Yay! Yay! So again, as with the previous episode, we're not going to go into the big reveal at the end who the killer is, mm. uh, but there is kind of a revenge storyline and someone does get a hole blown through mm. them with a shotgun, which is fucking amazing. Yeah, it was very well done. I yeah. love the fact that after this happened, Troy pronounces her dead. By just sort of looking at her and shaking his head. It's like, well, of course. <laughs> like, like <laughs> Troy, we can see you through this one. Like, obviously, she's down and she's not getting up. Anywho, um, so one of the things that annoyed me about this episode, aside from the fact that there were no fucking witches in mm -hmm. it, although a couple of mentions were given for witches, mm -hmm. and I guess you could look at like the herbal skill department. Yeah. The thing that mainly annoyed me was the man made out of flowers. Mm -hmm. And it's explained that this was done in an attempt by uh, a third party to extort money um, from Victoria and like to threaten her. And it seems like one, a really oblique way to threaten someone. I I think it was supposed to be one of those threats where the person issuing the threat knew what it meant and the person receiving the threat knew what it meant. But anyone else it is kind of like a secret threat, yeah. you know? Like I I could see why they went for it, but in terms of as a symbol, they may as well have just done an eye. Like if they just done like a very simple outward yeah. picture of an eye. That would have had the same overall effect. I yeah. don't really understand. To me, it just kind of was like a thing that they put in, which is very shocking and kind of weird and creepy when you see it as a viewer. But then it's kind of weakly explained. Yeah, I mean, like, I can't really say to give yeah to without giving away, but um, it is done in a. I know what you did, and you know what you did, and that means that like. We're sort of both on the same page, which I think was perhaps not even meant to threaten, but just to. No, I get it. I just think but it like, was. It, it was just. Yeah, it it's it. It kind of reminded me of 
the other episode where everyone kept bursting into flames, the straw woman. Yeah. And um, that there was all this straw woman stuff, and then at the end, the actual reason behind it was kind of weak. I think a lot of the time with Midsummer Murders, they tend to have here are the really cool visuals, and here's the kind of the like interesting weird premise. And then the actual mystery itself doesn't really involve either of those things. Yeah, no. Those are just kind of parts of it. Yeah. Uh, well, so we'll talk about a little bit more about uh, the overall kind of witchiness and our enjoyment of that one once we have discussed the final episode mm-hmm. uh, that we watched, which is much later on from Woman the Bard, which is Talking to the Dead, season 11, episode 7. And it's worth mentioning that this is only two episodes after the Magician's Nephew episode that we looked at last time. And this is actually the finale episode, I believe, for series 11. Um, so we, it, it's kind of clear um, as you go through the episode that quite a lot of the things have been put in there to let the series go out with a bang because it's got quite a high body count, quite a lot of mysteries. There's um, some very interesting flashbacks slash vision scenes. Yeah, there's definitely very like, well a, we've got how much of the budget left? Yeah. <laughs> Let's just blow it all. Um, it's, it's, it's quite cool. And it sees us return to, instead of having Troy as the sidekick to Barnaby, we have uh, Sergeant Jones, yes. who is my second favourite. Ben Jones is uh, all right, but he's a bit of an idiot. Like, he's a long-suffering potato. He does not, he's not too quick on the uptake, it's Ben. I think, because the thing with Troy was that, like, he'd seen as him and Barnaby continued their journey into this weirdness together, then Troy left and Ben joined. So Barnaby was like, I'm 11 seasons deep in this bullshit, and Ben just like, I'm still new to all this. It's, What's going on? It's an uneven yeah. but, division. But um, we do get quite a few nice little scenes uh, of humour at uh, Ben's expense. Yeah. Which I did kind of appreciate, and it, it did kind of lighten the mood and... and it was a kind of a crazy episode, so let's get yes. into it. I would go so far as to say a wacky episode. Oh, it was. It had elements of the wacky. Do you want to try and do a wacky cover of the Midsummer Murders thing? No, I, I do, don't. Do, 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 do. I don't have a kazoo. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so um, we open kind of right in the thick of things. There isn't a huge lead in for this one. The postman just comes to deliver the post to a house. He goes in, like, looks through the window, confused as to when no one's coming to the door. He goes in and sees that all the breakfast things are still laid out as if someone got up in the middle of breakfast and then just left the house. Everyone's, like, gone. Everyone's missing. It's very creepy. And then Barnaby and Ben arrive. Um, Their shit name will be Ben Baby. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. But Barnaby and Ben arrive and say everything in this cottage is the same as the one, uh, the other one they've been to. So we find out through this that on the same morning, two couple two couples in two cottages have both apparently just disappeared in yeah, the middle into of dinner and the first lot are colin and molly thomas and the second lot are stanley and nesta goodfellow uh, nesta is the wife i've never heard the, the name nesta is a female name i have but only in like it's it was tended to be used more as like a performer name like it's a mm. It was the name of, I think, a 1920s starlet. Uh, we get a little bit of backstory on the Thomases, Colin and Molly, uh, and that they were the parents of a boy who, after an argument, ran away into the supposedly haunted woods uh, to be discovered several days later speaking in tongues and to later die of hypothermia, yeah. which was apparently very tragic. And we are told by three different characters in no less than a minute that the woods are haunted and that's a big deal around here. And they are supposedly haunted by the ghosts of monks who were massacred 
at the dissolution of the monasteries, which is apparently Midsommar's favourite era. Which is weird, because it's set over here in the West Country, and I don't think there was a lot of, like, don't know enough raiding. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong on that, but I always thought that was more like a sort of London and surrounding areas thing. Maybe I'm wrong. Uh, we're introduced to a couple of other characters. So we get introduced to a reverend who is known as Brimstone, because he's Reverend Stone. Uh, he is the vicar. He is so anti-superstition and anti-basically anything that isn't his version of Christianity. Yes. So he is the man we will come to love to hate, mm-hmm. which is great. And we also get introduced to landowner Lyndon Fodder. He owns the two cottages and the two couples work for him. Uh, and they go to his house because he doesn't live there. He's kind of an absentee landlord. He works up in London. He only visits occasionally. Uh, and they find that his house has actually bro- been broken into. But obviously he wasn't there. So uh, nothing could have happened. We also meet the vicar's wife. who is Poor long-suffering Sarah. Yes, she is uh, so tired of being yelled at by the vicar. Um, he's just generally being kind of mean to her. So she seems like she's got a lot going on, and more on that later. Yes. Sarah's my favourite character. <laughs> uh, we also then meet Cyrus Lavallo, which I was trying to write down phonetically and failed. But he is known as the ghost hunter. He's very kind of like Derek Cora, yeah. kind of TV psychic guy. And he is coming to the area for what else? The anniversary of the massacre to try and contact the ghosts. And he's bringing quite a lot of his ghost hunting groupies with what are your opinions on Cyrus? I thought, I don't know, I mean... Just like in, in his introduction. In his introduction, he seemed fairly transparently like, oh, okay, TV psychic, like, yeah. whatever. Um, we've seen it done before, like, I'm sure it's a archetypal character at this point. It's not going to stop yeah. being done anytime soon. Um, I did feel it was kind of weird how much Barnaby was like, no, you're bad and wrong, and you cheat people, and da, da. Yeah, like, Barnaby really hates him. Not that it was out of character for him to be against that type of But he's usually quieter about it. He, he talked to his wife about it, he wouldn't necessarily get that angry at the person. Yeah, he tends to be a sort of each-to-their-own kind yeah. of guy, so it seemed kind of weird for him to be so instantly angry at this man. Yeah. <laughs> it was yeah, it was a little bit out of character for Barnaby. Um, we do have to get a very amusing scene, which is when they go to Barnaby and Ben go to look at Lyndon Palmer's house. They see that he has an Iron Maiden in the hallway, amongst many other antiques. I think we yes mentioned his that house earlier. is packed with antiques and obviously lots of valuable stuff, and they are uh, concerned that obviously the house has been broken into, but nothing seems to have been taken. Mm. Uh, he also has a lot of like little gigaws and knickknacks. Yes. Conspicuously displayed, which we'll come into it later. Back to the Iron Maiden, however, which is sort of Chekhov's Iron Maiden at this yes. point, because uh, this is the second episode with an Iron Maiden yeah. in it. Uh, obviously, someone's going in that later, but um, unfortunately, right now, Ben is going in. Yeah. Uh, they open it up and have a look inside, and Barnaby explains how an Iron Maiden works. With too as, much relish. Uh, as if, like, but as if there are. Like, uh, maybe there are people who don't know what an Iron Maiden is. It just... to, to be fair, this isn't one where it just has spikes and you close yeah. it on people. This one, it, it doesn't have the spikes sticking out. You close it and then you engage a mechanism which pushes the spikes out and, and thus kebabbing something. Yes. Um, but they open it, they have a look inside, and Barnaby explains how it works. 
Um, Barnaby then wanders off. He wanders off. Ben continues to poke his head inside, then decides he wants to stand inside it, I guess, to see if he can fit. Like, I don't really understand what the point was here. It, um, he's just being an idiot. Yeah. Um, and then as Barnaby walks through to the other room, because the Iron Maiden is huge, he can't see that Ben's inside it, so slams the door shut, which uh, then engages like a, a lock, like a sort of clasp that keeps it shut, so Ben can't get out. And there's many minutes of Barnaby kind of just walking around looking at stuff, calling back through to Ben, who he assumes is in another room, while Ben is is trapped in the Iron Maiden. But Barnaby does eventually let him out. And Ben is so traumatised when he does. It's, it's, he looks like he has literally seen a ghost. Yes. Um, so Cyrus Lavalu is an interesting man. First of all, he appears to be trying to communicate with ghosts using a piece of chandelier crystal that he wears as a necklace, mm-hmm. which is massive. Uh, they go out into the woods so that he can communicate with the spirits in front of all his groupies. And he has a fascinating chair. Yes. That one of his assistants puts down for him. It's like a sort of silver stake that goes into the ground, like a little sort of seat on the top. I, I have seen those, but they're kind of like tripod things where yeah. like, mostly you take them to like theme parks or whatever, where you might be standing in line for a long time, mm. but you need a place to lean. Um, but yeah, it's kind of a weird, interesting touch to like add. Yes. I don't know. Um, well, it becomes sort of important, but I, I was kind of confused by the presence of the chair. But when they try and like pick it up after he's sat on it and done a little bit of um, psychic, psychic visioning. visioning, in which we see like a full-on costumed reenactment of the massacre, which is impressive. Yes, um, we see that the chair is actually stabbed into the ground through a dead hand, mm. which is attached to a dead person. And I know what you're thinking: which one of the four missing people is it? Well, jokes on you because it is a fifth person. Yes, who no one can currently identify uh, out of. All the various people who know the area and the town very well, um, including a police officer who worked with one of the missing couples on, uh, like, on their son's case, uh, th- th- this guy is unknown to everyone. Which he is, is a mystery man. Kind of impressive. <laughs> At this point, Vanda postulated their first theory, which mm-hmm. was that the missing people were being held in some sort of priest concealment hole, or monk concealment hole, and that the weird voices and screams and cries that could be heard throughout these supposedly haunted woods were these people who were being held captive. Was that theory correct? It was almost correct, because part of my theory... I disagree. Well, part of my theory was that um, the guy who had turned up dead was possibly someone who knew they were in that hole. For whatever reason, they'd had to go into hiding or been kidnapped or something. And... He was someone who knew about it and was going back to help them um, and got killed on his way. So now no one knew they were in there, so they were stuck. And although that as a theory did not work, there was an element of correctness in there, okay. which I don't want to specify because it will spoil something. My theory was 100% incorrect, yes. but we'll, we'll get to that later. <laughs> uh, we also get introduced formally to Simon Melms, who is the postman who is kind of a shady character. Um, he said that he was there to deliver a package to the house uh, where he noticed people were missing, but no such package is found at the scene. So Barnaby interviews him and it becomes queer. It becomes queer very <laughs> Simon quickly. Simon Melms does not become queer. Barnaby he's takes off his saint. shirt and just like <laughs> dances a little dance and he's like, oh, go on then. No, it becomes clear very quickly that Simon Melms has stolen the package um, and that he has, according to Ben, who has done a little bit of a background check, he has been fired as all kinds of delivery people, mm-hmm. service people, because he steals things. 
he has also stolen the vicar's wife. <laughs> yeah, Reverend Stone's wife is uh is is getting very friendly with him when Barnaby and Ben arrive on the scene. Oh yes, I forgot about yeah. that. <laughs> um, they're, they're standing on the on the path. There's one of the windows is open in the cottage, and they hear you know canoodling going on. And they stand there for a second, and then Troy goes, "Is anyone in?" Not Troy, it's Ben. Oh god! It was a quip worthy of Troy, though. That was one of those moments yes. where I was like, "Go on, Ben, you're nearly getting there." And uh, that 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 gave us a little bit of a chuckle. Uh, we find out what's in the package. It's a small, ugly-looking baby figure. Yeah. Um, Looks like it's made out of some kind of like ivory or tooth or something. Yeah, and it's apparently a Netsuke. Yes, or what they also pronounce as a Nitsuke, but um, one of those. Yeah. And uh, obviously, they cotton onto the fact that when they were at Partridge's house. They saw his knickknacks and giggles, and quite a lot of them were these small bone figurines. So they postulate that this was, in fact, one of his and it had been stolen. But why had it been sent to the house of one of the people who worked for him? That was interesting. It had a note with it that said, as agreed, and then was signed by an antique shop. Yes, an antique dealer in town. Um, So obviously they're going to go with that. Uh, Unfortunately, before they can get to the antique, up and do a little bit more digging another body is found how ah. could this be uh Pargeter goes to the thomas's cottage and finds molly thomas apparently now undisappeared in the bedroom upstairs shot with a shotgun in the back and listening to a very interesting radio drama very sinister radio very drama. sinister i think it was supposed to be a monologue we would we would recognize yeah. from something um but it was some woman saying about how she would like destroy everything she owned and kill her children and raise her town to the ground so that whoever it was who was trying to take it away from her would inherit only dust and all that kind of it was very, very Shakespearean thing. Uh, this is why I postulated my theory that these strange lights and sounds that have been apparently heard in the woods over many a year were in fact uh, the activities of local witches because I was still clinging to the idea that maybe there would be witches in this episode. Mm. I was 100% wrong. Yes. Although, at this point, I would like to say, uh, this is what I wanted to talk about a little bit earlier, is a lot of the atmospheric sounds throughout this episode are actually happening in the episode, which is such a rarity for Midsummer Murders that it made me like this episode way more, <laughs> purely because it was like, oh, okay, this is what's happening on screen, this is what I can hear, this is actually happening in the scene that is playing before me, instead of oh yes, we've dubbed in some creepy children's laughter and some, like, women singing or something. I don't think you have to specify creepy children's I, laughter. Yes. But, like, it, it was just a thing of, there were all these kind of creepy wails and, and screams Ooh. and general kind of, like, pain-filled noises and they were all what people were actually hearing, which was just a very nice change. Um, so Barnaby and Jones go into the woods and they're investigating some stuff. There's a sort of recurrence of this weird car that they keep seeing that as soon as it sees them drives away really fast. More on this later. But they find a creepy ruin uh, in the middle of the woods, which appears to be the ruin of the Abbey. And there's a guy standing in the corner, like he's in the Blair Witch Project, making really unsettling, mumbling... pitched wails and mumbling... Yes. Um, and things like that. And it turns out it is Stanley Goodfellow, one of the missing people, um, who is apparently speaking in tongues. And that was actually really quite scary. Yes, that was. That was a very sort of... It, it was a very carefully done build-up of tension 
it had a kind of a like a minor laugh in there where Barnaby got attacked by an owl and that was so funny. They were all running through the woods and no one could find each other and it was it was a whole thing. It was like the closest I think Midsummer Murders tends to get to like actual horror sort of horror, which was a nice like nice yeah. addition. These actually used to frighten me when I was a mm. kid watch, so that was kind of a nice um, nostalgia thing for me. Uh anyway, they cart Stanley Goodfellow off to a hospital, which good call. He is there diagnosed with disassociative trauma, mm-hmm. uh, which is basically, they say he's seen something so terrible that he cannot articulate it and so has lost the power of speech. And has lost touch with reality a little bit because of that. He's just sort of retreated into his own mind. Yep. We find out the identity of the fifth mystery man who, who got his hand skewered by the chair mm-hmm. earlier. His name is Terence uh, Lulther, and he was apparently part of a gang of antiques thieves working in London. Uh, it's then confirmed that the wife of the vicar is doing the postman, and that we find that the mystery car belongs to several rough-looking guys who we see associating with Pargeta in the local pub. So there's definitely an idea that he is involved in some sort of um, shady goings-on involving antiques, or that he owes them money. Something is, is, is definitely going on. Uh, then we get another creepy moment. The vicar takes a very, very shiny crucifix mm. into the woods, uh, apparently attempting to do an exorcism because he's kind of clashed with the psychic over the spirits in the woods and he wants to basically take ownership of dealing with them instead of the psychic. And he finds a body sitting up in a grave mm. and the identity of that body is Colin Thomas. So of our missing people, one of them is temporarily mentally ill and two of them are dead and one of them is still. The guy sitting up in the shallow grave was quite creepy. Yes, it was. And then we got the added creep factor of uh, when they took him, when the sort of crime scene investigators came in and everything. Coroner. Coroner, thank you. Completely forgot the word. I don't think it's called a coroner in England, but we'll just pretend that it Um, is. The the coroner is just sort of very casually saying, oh yeah, this happens all the time. Like, there's a a build-up of gas in the body as it starts to decay and people just sit up. Which I did already know, but it is a creepy fact. Yeah. Uh, Again, I already know it was in a book um, about the journey through the elementary canal. Uh, but I sort of questioned whether he was starting to decay when he only went missing like the previous day, which is when he was killed. But yeah. He had been, so all of the bodies we found thus far were like in very shallow graves on the forest floor. So I could believe that there's maybe some kind Accelerated of like accelerating. People. The police decide then to focus their attentions on why these four people specifically have been disappeared, which seems like something they should have done earlier. But right. Okay. Uh, they find a ticket in the name of Nesta, which is hidden under a floorboard in her house, and it's a ticket to Florida. So obviously she was planning on going to Florida without her husband, and was keeping it a secret. There is also a note signed from Sex Bomb, which is an interesting choice of it anonymous is. love note. And uh, we did have confirmed for us earlier when uh, the copper who worked on the case of the son when he ran away um, she had talked to all of them and she said that from what she knew, Nesta was um, prone to having the odd affair every now and then. So yes. it wouldn't be surprising if Nesta was planning on leaving her husband at this point. Or person unknown. Mm-hmm. Um, so the police then confront the postman about his thieving ways because they see him uh, breaking into one of the missing couple's house to steal things. And he confirms that they were stealing antiques from their employer, uh, Pargita, and that he was stealing from them because I probably wouldn't report him stealing stolen goods. Uh, so get a little bit of information there. The psychic then announces that he's going to try and use his powers to locate the last missing person, Nesta, 
and he predicts that she lies beneath the sign of the witch in a dark place. So finally, 57 minutes in, someone has said the word witch. Yes. We did. The closest we got up until that was there was a paranormal themed shop. Yes. Um, called Paranorma. Uh, I choose to believe that the woman who owned the shop, who is did get seen very quickly, is called Norma. Um, it's it's sort of it's where they're having the book signing event and all this sort of thing. So clearly that's the local tie-in, but we don't get to see inside of it. Um, no. We don't get to find out anything more about it. It's just sort of a shop front that some drama happens in front of. Yes, um, but Norma is a witch. I choose to believe that. We see her very briefly. She did look quite. <laughs> Quite witchy, but unfortunately we never get to meet her. Nope. Uh, Barnaby then takes matters into his own hands. He chases the mystery car in his car into the woods, but because his car is a city slicker car, he gets stuck in the mud and trapped in the woods alone at night for a bit, which is a little bit scary mm. for him. Um, then we see at Pargeter's house him helping a bunch of the rough type looking dudes loading the mystery car up with antiques. This was time for Bounder Theory number two. I can't remember theory number two. Theory number two I wrote, uh, wrote down was, you said Pardita was selling stuff dodgily to keep the money from going to his ex-wives. Who had been mentioned. Who had been mentioned previously. He didn't like paying alimony. And uh, that the others were disposed of because they interfered with or found out about his ex-wives. Or possibly were also trying to sell the same things, yes. in which case that couldn't really stand. <laughs> yes. Uh, they find out that all this shady dealing and the shady antiques are being sold through Temple Antiques which is the same antique shop that the mysterious figurine was sent to and from. So we kind of are uncovering a little bit of a racket here. Uh, Barnaby then takes a radio into the woods to test a theory and finds that the signal to it is blocked because there are devices in the trees which are receiving a signal from elsewhere and transmitting these scary noises. The wails and howls yes. and so on. So someone has rigged the wood up for spooky effects and because Barnaby has kind of a slightly unreasonable dislike for psychic, mm. he instantly lays this at his door and confronts him with the local pub. And at this point, we do get some reasoning for why Barnaby is so like distrustful of this guy. And all the fairly standard criticisms of TV psychics, really, the whole, like, you're yeah. feeding on people's grief and anxieties, and you're making them think they're going to be safe doing things that aren't safe, and you're making them think not safe when they are and which is fair enough but again just doesn't really quite fit Barnaby's character, Barnaby's character overall yes. so that was a bit of a weird moment I think because Barnaby has kind of always been a non-character like mm. his, his main attributes are he doesn't like crime and he has kind of a dry and sarcastic sense of humour and he has a wife and sometimes she makes him do things that he doesn't want to do he's a very kind of bland Bella Swan of a character he's, like honestly his sort of detective defining trait is local knowledge yeah generally like his thing is he knows small villages he knows the way they work he knows the type of people that are there so it's more kind of familiarity with <laughs> yeah everything so it seemed kind of weird for him to be this outspoken about this particular thing uh, we then get some killer points of view they are watching stanley at the mental hospital that he's in he's sort of sitting out in the garden and they have a really cool looking dagger, mm. uh, which does appear to have like a hallmark or something on it, so might be an antique. Uh, we then discover that Pajito is actually a fence, that he is using his sort of reputation and the appearance of his, his wealth and antiques collection 
to sell other stolen goods that have been previously stolen by his uh, Roth associates. This isn't really relevant, I guess. It just sort of explains what he's been doing, really. Yes. Uh, unfortunately, then Stanley goes missing from the hospital and the bloody dagger is discovered left behind. It's confirmed the dagger is an antique. And with this information, the police go straight to Partridge's house and discover that the knife was part of a collection that he had displayed on his wall. They also then discover a transmitter, so it is clear that it is Pargeter transmitting the ghost noises, uh, and he also has a ticket to Florida. So it becomes very clear that he was having an affair with Nesta, and that he was also trying to keep people away from the woods, presumably to hide his illegal deeds. However, when the police arrive at his house, he seems to be halfway through packing a suitcase, but not in evidence is nowhere to be found until they discover... Dun, dun, dun. Can you guess where this is going? A trail of blood! I wish I knew any Iron, Iron Maiden, Maiden songs. That would have sung. Um, I, I do, and I can't okay. think of a single one right now. So they open the Iron Maiden, and we actually... like I, I was expecting them to just see the blood pot of wire and then yeah. cut away, and then maybe he'd be in a yeah. body bag. But no, they open it, and you see him like there with an expression of frozen horror... Mm-hmm. And like these bloody wounds through his chest, which is pretty cool. Fully impaled. Like uh, this is this is the one where they had the budget. They were like, we're gonna get monks, we're gonna get horseback riders slaying monks, we're gonna get an Iron Maiden and someone stuffed inside it. Like it's gonna be great. Uh, now we are going to again draw a veil over the conclusion of the episode mm. to hide the identity of the killer. Um, but needless to say that we end up with a pretty impressive body count because we've got. Mm. Several people murdered, including Padre himself, by the end. And then um, it sort of got into the part at the end where the episode wraps up and Barnaby just talks to his wife for a little bit. So Banda went off to the toilet and I sat just to watch the last one or two minutes of Barnaby and Joyce talking about how she likes psychics. Doesn't. While Vanda wasn't here, uh, they decide to go to the woods. Barnaby decides to take her out to the woods and show her the, the transmitters and scare her with spooky noises which I thought was going to be a bit of a funny mm. bit, you know, like, ah, ha, 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 and then the credits, and then it would be over. But no, um, he goes off to get a signal for the transmitters, and he hears a scream, which is his wife. He turns around, and she has found the psychic, who is dead, with a tortured expression of terror upon his face, propped up against a tree. Sarah, at this point, started yelling, what the fuck? Yep, Vanda came <laughs> um, running back in. I came back in. I thought this was over. I was very confused. We rewatched that bit. Uh, so they take the psychic guy to the morgue and uh, the pathologist. The pathologist. I remember the word. Yeah, the pathologist guy is like, yeah, I, I've never seen this happen before, but it is a known thing. And basically he was actually scared to death, which is a thing that I know can happen. It can. Yes. Um, there is a scientific reasoning behind it, but basically it's kind of like you have an adrenaline attack rather than a heart attack. Yeah. It's like the, a whole the thing. The way the pathologist explains it is that you can become so terrified and panicked that your body tries to calm you down, but it tries so hard to calm you down that your heart stops and you die, mm. which is a, a fairly simple way to describe that. And then you just see like a massive close-up of Barnaby's giant face, and he goes like, so you're telling me this man was literally scared to death. And then the credits roll, and... Yeah. Then we actually had to check to make sure that this wasn't like the beginning of a two-parter because it felt like that's where it was going. But no, no. End of the as far as I can episode. tell, never mentioned again. Yeah, end of the episode, <laughs> end of the series. Um, which I know that sometimes when they have more supernatural inclined 
episodes, they like to leave it a bit more open-ended. They let like, it dangle. Then. Like, a, oh, you know, like, yes, the, the, the psychic was, you know, he was a fake in this regard, but there was this thing that might have made it real. And, ooh, ooh. but this was a bit too open-ended for me. Yes. This was just like, there is a whole other crime here that you potentially need to investigate. Yeah. Why is the episode stopping? It was very strange. Uh, and that's just reminded me that um, the psychic's prediction about the sign of the witch mm. is actually accurate. Uh, the, uh, however, the sign of the witch that he mentioned is just a horseshoe over a well. Mm. That That's literally it. We don't even get yeah. anything like witchy. It's not even like a pentagram or something. Yeah. Or I was expecting like there'd be... Cause, so this is the thing that I was more annoyed at about the psychic. Is like I said, we've seen this type of character before but, yeah. in pretty much any TV show. Um, and it always ends up that, oh, maybe the psychic actually does have a gift, but you have to understand to interpret the clues in a really weird and roundabout way, which, yes, fair enough, when you are divining, a lot of the time the thing that you think it means is not the thing it actually means. Yeah. That is, I, I will give them that. But A, it becomes kind of predictable when it's like, ah, but the thing you thought it means doesn't actually mean that. But also, I feel like that doesn't necessarily prove anything. Yeah. Because it's the countryside and it's random woods. Like, you could find a million signs of witches anywhere. anywhere. Like, you could find a toadstool ring. You could find a magpie feather nailed to a tree. You could find, like, so many different things that are traditional witchcraft charms just lying around the woods. What would have been more impressive to me would have been since we'd had that shop front yeah. with Paranorma. <laughs> on it on it if there had been something there that had started a chain of clues yes like her her secret lies here and if you look there there's something that leads you somewhere else and there's like a scavenger hunt kind of thing like would have been more impressive because that would have meant there was an actual like degree of removal which would have required some sort of divination or gift yeah uh, to be honest, I didn't really care for either of these episodes overly much. Basically, neither of them had a lot of witchy stuff in. You had the kind of plant law mystery in the first episode that we looked at. And then in this one, there was obviously the psychic stuff. We do see some sort of seance type rituals that he's doing, but not a huge amount. Uh, and obviously there's the talk of the witch's sign, but that's pretty much, you could replace that with any other word. It would still mean the same thing. And... That I kind of prefer the mystery in the second one just because it had more bodies, mm. it was more scary, it was more shocking, uh, things seemed to happen a bit more. Also, I think as soon as you introduce a, like, someone has disappeared rather than there is a dead body and we need to figure out who put it there, it feels like there's more of a tick in the box. Yeah. Like, you have to pretend, like, they could still potentially be alive and out there somewhere and you have to find them before that trail goes cold. Like, there's there's more of a sense of, like... Yeah. And it wasn't even just the fact that, like, oh, someone, single person has been kidnapped. Mm. It was the fact that four people had just disappeared. Yeah. That was pretty cool. That was kind of Jonathan Quinkish. However, in the, like, solving of the mysteries in both episodes, I didn't really care for the reasoning behind it or the kind of reveal mm. of who the killer was. Um, A lot of them, like, both of them felt quite circuitous. Like, there was no real sort of this happened, so this happened. In the worm in the bud, that did have a slightly more straightforward reasoning behind it. Obviously, I thought it didn't. 
Like, I thought one of the murders just didn't make sense. It sort like it it was mostly about the one main murder, but when you find out the reason, I then got annoyed that someone else hadn't got murdered because if if person A was worth getting murdered, then surely person B could also have been murdered for that same logic. Yes. So that did bother me, but both of them did feel kind of like there bit, was a bit. Uh, they both seemed to fall into the category of, well, I murdered one person, and then I just had to keep killing additional people for I some think reason. It was the fact that the murders, especially in Worm in the Bird, they felt so like kind of premeditated mm. that the idea that they were sort of crimes of passion or things like emotional mm. significance just didn't really do it for me. I think out of all four, my favourite reveal was the magician's nephew. Mm. I felt that that seemed like it was more tightly plotted. There was definitely a reason for everything the killer had done. And it wasn't just a case of we put this stuff mm. in to be creepy and impressive and then had to justify it later. Yeah. Also, um, with uh, with um, Talking to the Dead, mm -hmm. they covered a plot element, which I don't want to spoil things, but... Someone did something which I personally find very distasteful when they have people do it on TV. And the reasoning behind it was, oh, well, they're, they're, they're the bad person. Like, you find out at the end that the killer did something to muddy the waters, which I thought was not an okay thing. <laughs> Future Sarah cut that last bit, but uh, was going to go nowhere. <laughs> okay so out of the the four episodes that i forced you to watch mm -hmm. <laughs> um which one of them do you think was your favorite and follow-up question which one did you think uh was the most witchy in terms of the content they don't necessarily mm. have to be the same so. i think my favorite is tricky it's really tricky to pick a favorite one, but I know that none of the, neither of these two were my favorite. No, so I, I didn't like either. My favorite was down to either Straw Woman or Magician's Nephew, which is annoying because I feel like if Talking to the Dead had panned out slightly differently to the way it did, it I think it had a lot of potential and it could have been just better. replace the psychic with a witch. Yeah, that would have made it work. Literally, or like replace any one of the four missing people with a witch and have it be more about that would have been yeah. interesting. Um. But I'm going to say that I think Magician's Nephew was my favourite. Hey, me yeah. too! Why was it your favourite? Um, because it had... It, it was one of those ones where, like, the most satisfying thing with these kind of mystery solutions for me is when you know enough that you're kind of, like, solving just a step or two ahead of where they are. So it's not like you're there going, but this is this. Do you not know that this is this? I thought this was this. And it did have an element of that. Yeah. But it meant that all we knew was really only keeping us like one step ahead um, because we were still there going, well, it's either that person or that person. Then we were stuck there for the rest of the episode. Um, so it's kind of like a, that you're ahead of them, but you're not too far ahead of them that it becomes frustrating. And that's what I like. The most it really kind these. of walked that line. Really yeah. Nicely. I really liked it because it had quite a lot of witchy tropes in it. It had like kind of the ceremonial magic mm. thing. It had the idea that there's someone who really believes it and then there's someone who thinks it's just all like a kind of a caper. Mm -hmm. And then it had like characters like Zold who were obviously so sold on it 
and were very mm. self-important with it, which read very clearly to me as definitely people I've spoken to in the community. Um, and also it had really nice reveal at the end. Mm. It was really kind of consistent and I it was a lot of fun getting there and I think I would definitely watch that one again yeah. if I saw it on television. I think everyone's actions made sense and the murders and the method of murder made sense. Yes. Like everything was sort of consistently logical within its own little box. And I think it also had the most witchy stuff mm. in it because it had the, the sort of ceremonies and stuff that we saw as well. That was but see, conversely, I would say that in terms of most witchy, mm -hmm. uh, Worm in the Bud and Straw Woman, I would say are actually tied. Ooh. Because. So, uh, not Worm in the Bud. Um, Magician's Nephew. Magician's Nephew and Straw Woman are actually tied. Uh, and I would say that because uh, Magician's Nephew has more in the way of like, People use the word pagan. There's like yeah. there's more of a religious thing to it. So in terms of magic and paganism as a religion mm -hmm. and as a faith, I would say that has far more of like you say it's got all the kind of tropes of it. It's got the person who seriously believes in it and the person who thinks it's just kind of a fun thing to mess around with and have a laugh at. Uh, you've got the like the second generation who's very into it and believes that they have some in like innate power because of that you've got all those different features and that works but i would say that straw woman actually represents solo practice far more because although you don't get anyone going yes i'm a witch here's a thing and that would be really nice i think as a solo practitioner you don't necessarily well you know 10 years ago when that was filmed <laughs> It wasn't so much a dumb thing to maybe, like, there, there are situations where you think, well, maybe I'll just let people think I'm a herbalist or I'm, like, an alternative yeah. medicine expert because they don't really need to know what my own personal belief system is. It doesn't impact on my ability to care for them. But I'm still using my skills to further, like, my skills and my knowledge to, like, practice this craft and to help others. So I would say that one represents witchcraft and paganism as religion, whereas one represents witchcraft as a practice. Mm -hmm. I, I definitely see where you're coming from. Mm -hmm. I think that, for me, um, The Magician's Nephew reads as more, I guess, representative of paganism. Mm -hmm. I, I, I like the, the characters in Straw Woman. I think it would have been great if one of them was actually mm -hmm. a practicing witch. Um, that's not confirmed nor denied. So you can kind of get that from it. What I liked more about Magician's Nephew is in terms of the persecution, because there's persecution in both, mm -hmm. I thought the one in Straw Woman was a little bit unrealistic because it was people just standing outside someone's house going, you're a witch, mm -hmm. which I feel like that doesn't happen um, now. Um, um, and it's more the other kind of sort of persecution where people uh, go on television and call you a fool Mm. Or, or they take the mickey out of you or they deny you the rights to practice your religion uh, openly without ridicule without interference so th that i felt was more consistent mm. and that's i guess why it kind of it, i liked it although i did like both yeah okay well that has been our two-person review of midsummer murders yeah. And somehow, that is where the recording ended, and I cannot locate the rest of it. So you'll be denied us uh, playing you the Midsummer Murders theme on a kazoo. Or to be more accurate, Vanda doing that 
while I try to choke them to death. So you'll just have to imagine what that would have sounded like. And uh, maybe we can repeat that for you at a later stage. I'm really grateful if you've gotten all the way to the end of this. I'm sorry the audio quality on this specific recording out of all the other ones was especially bad. And I honestly don't know why that was. I did try and fix it. And uh, I hope that you stay tuned for further episodes with better sound quality. In the meantime, I'll see you in the next one. Bye!